Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 11. This is in connection with the topic that comes from the Catechism, which, is, which deals with the nature of the Lord's Supper and whether it's a sacrifice. And we want to see some of the places in Scripture, in the Old Testament, that speak of sacrifices in the New Testament age, which we also sang about in the song that we just sang. So Malachi 1, verses 1 through 11 The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant honors his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you, show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would, who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So far from Malachi, let's also turn forward now to Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read verses 1 through 14. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, 
would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Excuse me. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm In the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith. And we find ourselves this week in Lord's Day 30. It's on page 545 of your books of praise. And we're going to focus on question and answer 80. So that's the first one in Lord's Day 30. And so we'll just read that one together. The question there is, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches first that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a, de- but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, This is, of course, the second Sunday that we're spending reflecting on the differences between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass as part of our series of studies on the the sacraments. As I mentioned last week, the reason that we want to examine the Roman Catholic Mass in this kind of detail is not just because the Catechism itself devotes this many Lord's Days to it, but also because these questions 
do remain relevant for us today. Many of us have Roman Catholic friends, neighbors, and colleagues, and many of us, when we engage in in different kinds of of social work, like volunteering at the food bank or supporting uh, the pregnancy center that we support or holding uh, holding up signs as as part of the the 40 Days for Life, which will also uh, begin soon, as we do these things, we very often find ourselves standing alongside Roman Catholics. Uh, now, that might that reality, which is certainly something to be thankful for, that might make us ask, do we really want to get into the differences between us? If we can enjoy this kind of working alongside one another, do we really want to get into the differences that exist between us? Don't we have enough fights in the world and, and so on? Well, to that concern, I would say, to quote another pastor, good fences make good neighbors. If we want to work alongside one another and be able to do things together, it's healthy and helpful to know what the differences are. If we know what the differences are between us, then we can also know when can we stand together and work together and when ought we better not to do so. Uh, There are areas that we can work together. There are other things that we should not be doing together. Uh, And to know which which are which, we need to know what are the differences that exist between us. Uh, We can stand together and and hold up signs uh, for supporting the sanctity of life. Can we go to the Mass? Those are questions you can only answer if you know what the differences are and, and you know uh, how to ground what we believe in Scripture and what Scripture teaches about those differences uh, that exist. In, in our own day, there, there's an ecumenical movement uh, that's urging Protestant and Roman Catholic churches uh, to reunite, to come together. And that's certainly a good thing to pray for and to strive for. The Reformers themselves fought and prayed hard for, for that kind of unity uh, to happen but they, they understood you can't take shortcuts on the road to, to that unity. Our first allegiance is to Christ and to his word. And that means as much as we, we might want that unity, we cannot have it at the cost of, of the word of God. We can't simply gloss over or overlook the differences that do exist between us. Instead, we, we dialogue, we work them out, but we do that coming uh, from the perspective of Scripture. And we trust that Christ, Christ works through those uh, dialogues, those conversations. That's certainly the perspective that the Reformers had on, on these issues. We stand on God's Word, we dialogue uh, with Roman Catholics, and we trust that Christ will ultimately bring unity in His time and in His way. That's how we want to uh, diligently approach these questions. Well, as we saw last week, the the question of the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass uh, is one of the greatest differences, if not the greatest difference, uh, between Protestant and Roman Catholic churches. Uh, So if we want to further the work of the Reformation and work for a day when we can see unity again, we need to understand what the differences are and why they matter. Uh, Last week, we looked at the question of the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. In other words, in what way is Christ bodily present, if at all, in in the Lord's Supper? Roman Catholics teach that the 
the bread and wine literally become the actual flesh and blood of Christ, even though they, they still taste like bread and wine. And they, they also then insist that the bread and wine are to be worshipped as the body of Christ. Uh, and we saw last week that that doctrine is a serious misunderstanding of what Christ himself taught when, when he gave the bread and said, this is my body. Well, that doctrine is, is very closely related to the one that we're looking at uh, this afternoon, which is the Roman Catholic concept of the Lord's Supper, uh, understand these terms, as an atoning sacrifice. Uh, an atoning sacrifice. Uh, that's very much how they understand the Lord's Supper, and it makes a huge difference. It's a very significant error, and it fundamentally changes what the Lord's Supper is and what it's supposed to do. And that matters, particularly for Roman Catholics, because the Mass, for them, is what church is all about. Uh, the Mass is the reason you go to church. The sermon is an extra. You could go uh, without it. You go for the Mass. Uh, the, the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church says that the, the Eucharist is uh, the source and summit of the Christian life. In other words, it's, it's where Christian life comes from, and it's the pinnacle or epitome of what it means to live as a Christian. So what we want to do this, on, this afternoon, then, is understand, first, what exactly the, the Roman Catholic Church means by speaking of the Mass as an atoning sacrifice, and then consider their basis for that. They, they point to certain texts in, in Scripture. They also point to certain words that the church fathers uh, spoke or wrote. And then finally, we want to consider the implications of that from a biblical perspective. It's sad that uh, the Reformers understood these issues very, very well because they, they lived in that culture. They were, they were constantly dialoguing with Roman Catholics on these issues. But sadly, it's not something that, that most Reformed believers understand very well uh, today, in spite of the fact that the Roman Catholic Church remains very strong here in, in Canada and certainly even more so in, in other parts of the world. So we want to understand what these doctrines are and what their implications are. We need to understand, in the first place, that the Catechism is not at all exaggerating uh, or misrepresenting the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in, in this Lord's Day. Uh, there are some who, who are less acquainted with, with Roman Catholic doctrine, and they might think that this is, this is just a caricature of what Roman Catholics teach. It's not. Uh, we saw last week that the Roman Catholic Church very clearly and explicitly teaches that the bread and wine are to be worshipped, that they literally are the body and blood of Christ. Uh, that's not a, not a caricature. Um, equally, the Roman Catholic Church is very clear in its teaching that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice that's presented to God that has atoning value for covering your sins. I'll explain in a minute what that means and, and why it matters. Consider first just some of these statements from the Roman Catholic Church. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church teaches the following. They say, it says, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, in other words, the Mass, 
are one single sacrifice. The victim, namely Christ, is one and the same. The same now offers, so Christ now offers through the ministry of the priests, who then, who, who then offered himself on the cross, and only the manner in which Christ is offered is different. Uh, consider that. The only difference, according to Roman Catholicism, between 2,000 years ago, the day when Christ hung on the cross, the only difference between that event and the Mass is the way in which Christ is bodily offered. But in both, he is sacrificed to God. So in other words, then, the the only difference between that moment is the manner of offering. Every time the priest performs the Mass, it's as if Christ is sacrificed on the cross all over again, with the effect that new sins are atoned for that previously were not atoned for when Christ died 2,000 years ago. Uh, that's why the Council of Trent, written in the days of the, the Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent calls the Mass a propitiatory sacrifice. Uh, the word propitiatory uh, means that just like Christ's sacrifice on the cross turned away the Father's wrath against sin, so the Mass does the same Today, it turns away God's wrath against our sin. So the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ is sacrificed in the Mass such that our sins are forgiven. Now, they'll make some some distinctions. They'll say only venial sins, in other words, daily sins of weakness, are forgiven in the Mass. Mortal sins require more than the Mass. They used to go through confession and, and penance and It's a worthy distinction to tease out because then you're saying Christ's sacrifice only covers some sins. Some still need additional additional action. But anyway, the catechism is, is correct in saying, our catechism is correct in saying, that in the Roman Catholic Church, forgiveness is not obtained without going to the Mass. You cannot be forgiven without going to Mass. Uh, That's where Christ is sacrificed for you. And that's how you then access his sacrifice. Without Christ being offered uh, repeatedly through the Mass, Christ's death is nothing but a historical fact that happened 2,000 years ago. It has no effect for you unless he's sacrificed or presented over again for you. Now, we might balk at that, and rightly so, and, and we would say, well, where does Scripture teach such a thing, that Christ is, is presented as sacrificed over again in, in the Lord's Supper? And, and we would do well to ask, what does that do to the once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church adamantly insists that the Mass is a sacrifice, And if we were to ask them this, well, what does this do to the once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice? Uh, They would immediately point to the testimony of the church fathers, just as they did, uh, as we saw last week, when it comes to the real presence of Christ. Now, I mentioned last week, we are Catholic. We we confess the, the one holy, true Catholic church. And that means we do believe that Christ's spirit has been at work throughout the centuries. We don't divorce ourselves from, from the church fathers by any means. And that means that the teaching of the church throughout the ages should matter to us. It should impact the discussion. 
Uh, it's never, of course, the final answer. As also, as we saw this morning, the Word of God is, is our final answer. And yet we do see ourselves as united with the church fathers, and we listen carefully. That's part of the communion of saints to whom, to whom we listen. And, and so it should matter to us if Roman Catholics are, are saying, well, the church fathers always taught this. We should be interested in having that discussion. They may be right about some of the church fathers, uh, and, and that doesn't mean that, therefore, their position is biblical. There, there certainly have been church fathers who were wrong, and yet we want to know what the fathers have, have taught. And, and the Ro- and Roman Catholics are correct that the Lord's Supper has very often been called a sacrifice by the church fathers. Uh, And they're also right that you can find church fathers that speak of forgiveness being offered in the Lord's Supper. But just like with with the question of the real presence of Christ, you need to stop and ask, what did they mean when they said those things? We too speak of forgiveness being offered in the Lord's Supper. It's what it means when we say this is the body of Christ, uh, which is broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. If we say that, does that mean that we're saying Christ is being sacrificed over again? That's not something you find in the church fathers. And we shouldn't let the Roman Catholics win the church fathers to their side, so to speak, without a fair fight. And, and just like the, with the question of, of the real presence of Christ, we need to recognize this is sacramental language. This is looking at what the sacrament is teaching us, not speaking of a new sacrifice being offered. Uh, so, so saying that we, we think of, or saying that we have forgiveness through the Lord's Supper does not mean that we think Christ is being sacrificed over. It's saying the Lord's Supper points to the sacrifice that Christ already made by which we are already forgiven. Uh, So if you find that that sort of thing in the church fathers, it doesn't prove uh, that they hold to a Roman Catholic view of things. And it's true also that church fathers do sometimes speak of the Lord's Supper as, as a sacrifice. But that too is sacramental language. It means that the bread and wine represent and point to the sacrifice of Christ. It doesn't mean that it's a new sacrifice or a re-offering of of the same sacrifice. Besides that, there really is a sense in which you can speak of the Lord's Supper as as a sacrifice. And there are some church fathers who use the term in this way. And Roman Catholics often point to certain Old Testament passages like Malachi 1 that also speak of sacrifices happening in in the New Testament age, uh, which is to say uh, the current age, the age of the church. So, for example, they look at uh, Malachi 1 where the Lord says through Malachi, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. And they say, well, look, what what other sacrifice could it possibly be speaking of than than the sacrifice of of the Mass? Uh, And so they argue that these are proof that the Lord's Supper is to be thought of as as a sacrifice. Otherwise, uh, what other sacrifice could they be, be thinking of? Now, for one thing, we should always be very careful with Old Testament texts like these because the Old Testament prophets often describe the New Testament age in the terms of the Old Testament age. So, 
In Micah 4, for example, it, meant, it speaks of how in the future age, all nations will go up to Jerusalem, to the mountain of the Lord. Well, we believe that prophecy is, is being fulfilled, even in our present day, through the spread of the gospel, the nations coming to know God. Whether they actually go up to Jerusalem or not is not really the point. The New Testament age is often described in the terms of the Old Testament age. And the same is certainly true where it speaks of nations bringing tribute and, and sacrifices to God. That doesn't automatically mean that we're, we're now thinking of what we do in church as, as a, a sacrifice in the same sense that the Old Testament sacrifices uh, could be called that. However, even with that being said, with, with all of that, uh, those caveats... We can agree that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice in another sense. Because there wasn't only one kind of sacrifice in the Old Testament. There were, there were many kinds. There were guilt offerings. There were atonement offerings. But there were also thank offerings and, and peace offerings. In the New Testament, the worship of the church is described in exactly those terms as sacrifices of thankfulness. Uh, so Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, what kind of sacrifice is Paul talking about there? An atoning sacrifice that our lives atone for certain sins? Or a thank offering that our, we give our lives in thankfulness to God? If you look at the context of Romans 12, it's very clear he means a thank offering. You, you, you can see the same thing also when the uh, Philippians offered a gift of support to Paul. And, and Paul says, I have received from, from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Sure, there are sacrifices in the New Testament age. But we need to ask, what kind of sacrifices are they? In that sense, we can speak of the Lord's Supper as, as a sacrifice in terms of a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and worship. When we come to the table, we're giving ourselves again to Christ. We're giving a sacrifice of our lives. Uh, that's not to say that the Lord's Supper is an atoning sacrifice or a guilt offering the way that the Roman Catholics understand it. Here's why this matters profoundly for our faith. If the Mass is an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that covers sin that hasn't been covered before, then that radically impacts the once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's why we read from Hebrews chapter 10. There the author to the Hebrews says, in response to the Jews who, who insisted on, on a need for ongoing, repeated sacrifices, he says, if you look at uh, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now notice the, the past perfect tense that he uses in, in that verse. We have been sanctified. In other words, we were sanctified then, and we remain sanctified now on the basis of that one sacrifice he performed then. He says the same thing in, in the next verse, 
Uh, he says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered, notice what he says, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Again, the next verse, by a single offering, he has perfected, notice again the past perfect tense, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now the point is unmistakably clear that he's making there in in Hebrews 10. There's one single sacrifice by which every Christian is made perfect in God's eyes. And it happened once, he says it several times, once for all. In other words, at one point in time and has sanctified us forever. That's what it means to be justified by the blood of Christ. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church reads Hebrews as well. And so they they say, yes, we agree with this. Uh, But they say the Mass is not really a a new sacrifice. It it offers new forgiveness, but it's really just taking Christ's sacrifice then and sort of dragging it into the present and making it present again so that it can cover uh, new sins. Uh, So they say it's not really a, a new sacrifice, so to speak. Well, the problem is that this still implies that what Christ did then for us on the cross is not good enough, or it does not have any effect on us until Christ is offered again. Uh, And Hebrews is very clear. Once means once, and forever means forever. He was sacrificed once, and we're sanctified forever as a result. the, The Roman Catholic theology here implies then that we are not forgiven until Christ is presented as offered again for us, which means we're not sanctified forever by what Christ did once. We need to be sanctified over and over again. According then then to the Roman Catholic Church, we have not yet been sanctified until we partake of the Mass. We need to be sanctified over again. And the only way to do that is to drag Christ once again back into the present over and over and offer him to God once again to atone for new sins. That completely undermines the once for all that's very clear in Hebrews 10. And it also undermines the claim that we have been in the past, with present implications, we have been sanctified. So, brothers and sisters, understand this well, because this is so central to what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means you are, you are sanctified in Christ. You are cleansed by the blood of Christ, even now and every moment. To be sure, when we sin, we do ask God for forgiveness But we don't do that because we don't believe ourselves to be covered by Christ until the moment when we ask for forgiveness. Otherwise, the moment that that you sin or do anything imperfect again, you become unclean all over again. That's not how we think of the Christian life. We are covered at all times, always by the blood of Christ. God loves us as his children at all times because he counts us 
always together with Christ. That's how scripture speaks of the Christian life. We live as a people who are cleansed. Yes, we're still being sanctified with respect to our lives, with respect to our holiness, but we are already fully sanctified with respect to our sin and guilt before God. That's very clear from Hebrews 10. Now, because this is so clearly taught in Scripture, uh, the Roman Catholic Church will acknowledge this in one respect. They say, yes, there is one sense in which we have been sanctified, because they can't get around that, that term either. And yet the Roman Catholic Church still wants to insist on new forgiveness. The way they work this out is they, they draw a distinction between temporal and eternal punishment. So that they say in baptism, you're, you're covered from any eternal punishment, but you might not be covered from temporal punishment, which is to say punishment in, in purgatory. Uh, what that does is it introduces a new kind of judgment of God so that you can still be, be cowed into submission to the church by this threat of judgment from God. This is a radically different view of the Christian life. We believe that as Christians, we are covered completely by the blood of Christ, such that in spite of all our sins and weaknesses, no punishment awaits us. Consider uh, Romans 5 verse 1, and think about what Paul says here. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, notice that, that uh, past perfect again, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the present tense. We have peace with God. Temporal punishment does not hang over our heads as Christians. That's the the glory and the joy of the Christian life. It's why why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew where he was going immediately after his death. We never deserved it, but we have, right now, peace with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. And that peace, and you can ask Roman Catholics who who have gone through this and have thought through these questions, that peace is profoundly undermined by the idea of some temporal punishment still awaiting us. That's why uh, Roman Catholics often speak of of Roman Catholic guilt that, that... coerces them to to try to do more good works. They sense that they are under God's judgment. Even if they can say in one sense our sins have been forgiven in baptism, they're still waiting for purgatory where they will experience great torment until all of their sins are covered. That's why they go to the Mass. If you go to the Mass weekly, much of that torment is taken away. Consider also Romans 8. To, to continue with what Paul teaches here. Romans 8, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. As Roman Catholics, you don't get to live with that kind of peace. You may be covered by the blood of Christ, but you will be going to purgatory, and you may well still be going to hell. That's why in Dante's uh, Inferno, uh, notwithstanding all the Roman Catholic theology, uh, in Dante's Inferno, there's still a good number of popes that end up in the lowest realm of hell. 
And even if, as a Roman Catholic, you manage not to go to hell, you're still going to be going to purgatory probably for a very long time unless you go to Mass every week. And in Mass, anything you've done that week has been atoned for by the blood of Christ shed over again in, in that Mass. Now, that's a very, very different view of the Christian life and a very different view of what it means to have peace with God. That's why uh, Martin Luther said that until he understood justification according to Scripture's terms, he said until he understood that, he hated God. Now, I know that most Roman Catholics don't hate God, or at least many of them don't, but how often is that simply because their consciences are not as sensitive as Luther's was? It wasn't because Luther didn't understand Roman Catholic teaching that he hated God. It's because he understood it very well and he took it seriously. So let's take this then down from, from the realm of abstract theology into the reality of, of daily life. Because that's where Roman Catholic theology becomes very incarnate and, and clear. In Brazil, every year, there's this massive celebration called Carnival. I'm sure most of you have, have heard of it. And Carnival happens right before Lent, uh, right before the, the period of fasting and usually when Roman Catholics uh, prepare to go to Mass. And uh, usually that's on, on Good Friday. The Roman Catholic Church requires people to go to Mass once a year at a minimum. So I guess uh, somehow the blood of Christ has an expiration date as well. And what happens is Brazilians have this massive party right before that Mass. And many families end up spending their entire year's savings on rum and on prostitutes. And it's an extremely dangerous time in Brazil. Many families in the city simply lock up their homes and go out into the country where it's safer. And the entire country descends into a, a giant party filled with drunkenness, rape, and murder. Because everyone knows immediately afterwards you're going to go to Mass. And as long as you can avoid getting killed in the party, your sins are going to be covered again in Mass. Understand the, the implications of theology when it breaks down into, into daily life. If Christ needs to be sacrificed over again for His blood to have effect and for new forgiveness to be obtained, then the once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice is gone, and the peace that you have with God is gone. And the Christian life is something radically different, and the Christian relationship with his God is something radically different. There's a reason that uh, Roman Catholicism has so many other avenues to God, like prayers through saints and prayers to Mary because there is no relationship for many Roman Catholics with God because they're not living a life that pleases God because they have no peace with God because Christ's sacrifice only covered eternal punishment and God's judgment still hangs over them as far as that temporal punishment. So understand this well then. This is the truth that the Reformers discovered again, and we should be careful never to lose, no matter how badly we would love to, to have greater unity with the Roman Catholic Church. We cannot get these things wrong. The Lord's Supper is a seal, an assurance 
of forgiveness that is already yours in Christ. You don't go to the Lord's Supper to obtain new forgiveness that you didn't have before. It may give us a new assurance of that forgiveness. It certainly should. And it may give us a new sense of peace, but it does not change our status before God. Let me close then with just a couple points of application. We're doing this study because we want to examine all things in light of Scripture so that our faith and our practice would be faithful to Scripture. And we're doing this study on on the Mass because Roman Catholicism, for all that it may have changed since the Reformation, has not yet been reformed. We should long for the day when that happens, when we can become one because Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church has repented of her sins. And I, I do believe that that day will come, possibly before Christ's return, but we are certainly not there yet. And that needs to be there. That repentance and that biblical understanding of the Mass needs to be there before ever we can consider ourselves uh, as able to become one again. The Roman Catholic Church continues to insist that every Christian must submit himself or herself to the Pope and to the Roman Church, which they hold to be infallible. It's the very error that we saw this morning, that you need the Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, speaking with their authority in order to understand Scripture yourself. And if you disagree with them, you're wrong by virtue of their authority that they claim to have. As Christians, we need to know why we don't elevate any human being to that status. And we ought to be calling them, just as we call ourselves, to submit to the truth of Scripture and the voice of Christ, our one and only head. For those of us who do have Roman Catholic friends, colleagues, or neighbors, perhaps there's no greater witness to them than to to let them know and see the peace that you have with your God and the love that you have for your God. For a father who loves you as his child, who does not condemn you, no, not even temporarily in, in purgatory, a father with whom we have perfect undeserved peace through Christ who died in our place. We ought to continue those conversations and that dialogue. We ought to call Roman Catholics to repentance, to the truth of Scripture. And to do that, we need to understand their doctrine just as well as we understand our own. And and we need to be able to hold it up to the light of Scripture and stand on that one foundation and be able to examine all things, including ourselves, in the light of God's Word. And so for ourselves also then, receive the Lord's Supper as you did this morning, as it was given by Christ, as a seal of his love for you and his bond with you because of his sacrifice that he performed once on the cross by which you and I are forever sanctified by his blood. Amen.